Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're talking to Tom, partner at Seedcamp and recovering lawyer. Seedcamp requires little introduction to most, but let's do it anyway. Seedcamp was founded in 2007 with the strong belief that exceptional talent can come from anywhere a belief that remains deep-rooted in the firm's DNA and actions today. The team has backed more than 430 companies that are early investors in European successes, like Hopin, Wise, Revolut, SoRare, WeFox, Plio, UiPath, Viz.ai, and Grover. In other words, say welcome to one of the greats. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Tom, welcome to the European VC. It's super nice to have you. How is everything? Everything's great. No, it's great to be here and uh, thank you for having me on today. That's our pleasure. It's also always cool to have a brand like Seed Camp here. I'm super excited to be talking to you guys and to you particularly. And before we start, let's start with the basics. And I always love asking this question, how the hell did you get into venture? Yeah, no, happy to run through a bit that. I think like most people I'm sure you have on the show, it's a bit of a kind of roundabout route into venture because venture being you know, such an emerging space to work in, particularly in Europe anyway. So my route started going way back. You know, I, I studied economics at university and thought maybe I'd go into kind of like a finance role or, or that kind of thing, which was a kind of classic route from school I went to. Ended up doing some internships in that space. Then credit crunch hit. So I was kind of graduating around the kind of credit crunch time. So 2008, 2009. And finance suddenly looked a little bit less appealing, maybe. <laughs> and to be honest as well, my undergraduate was very numeric, like kind of very mass focused in economics. And I kind of thought oh, I'd like to balance that out because I quite like, you know, some of the other sides of writing in other areas. So I thought, oh, you know what looks cool? Law looks like an interesting route to go down. So then did a couple of internships in law in my third year of uni. Was very, very fortunate to get a kind of what's in the UK is called a training contract for a kind of like top firm, which ended up being focused on VC and PE. We'll come back to that later. Um, and they kind of said, yeah, we'll give you a, a job offer, which starts in two years and pay you for law school. So I went to law school in London and then joined that firm to kind of like to train. So, so qualified into their private equity and venture capital team. I mean, obviously being very interested in business from, you know, the very beginning, I think that, you know, I always think that the, the things which I used to read in newspaper, even from a young age, it was the sport first and then it was the business section. And I've always kind of like been really interested in how kind of companies work and how different business models operate and all of that kind of side of things. So taking that and then through some education and then obviously coming into law, I got my first, I suppose, exposure to the world of private companies and backing private companies. So did a lot of work in, in that space around particularly like M&A and fund formation. And a lot of the clients which we worked with were across a big spectrum, but a lot of the bigger work was the massive like buyout deals on the private equity side. And then we had a team which was doing more venture stuff. And so that was the space where I was much more interested. I was like, you know, this venture world is fascinating. You know, you're working with younger companies. It's more tech-based. You know, I'm reading around all of this, like constantly outside of the work I was doing. And I pretty quickly recognized that 
law probably wasn't for me. Um, you know, I was there for three years and, you know, as I said, it gave me exposure to some interesting asset classes, but the type of work, I just think probably wasn't a great fit for my kind of personality, like very diligence focused and quite slow moving, quite kind of very, very long term until you maybe got to some of the more interesting work. And, you know, it was very, very intense on that side. But one of the clients of the firm I was at was this kind of like, there was this tiny fund which was being raised. And it went around the kind of department saying, who wants to work on this? You know, and everyone wanted to work on the big kind of like buyout fund. (laughs) And there's this tiny, like, they were targeting 20 million euro and they hadn't done a close yet. And they hadn't even, didn't even have a structure set up or anything. And they had a a bit of a track record. And I looked at the pitch deck and this was in like 2013, you know, Camp, And like, you know, the partner who had set this up and done the first two funds was their relationship partner, um, a, a guy called Elan, who's now kind of heading up Oracle's team. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll work on that. You know, I was an associate, so it was kind of great because I could get stuck into it. And, and it was brilliant because I got to learn a little bit about more about what Seacamp do and go through the deck and understand their model and get to actually spend time with, with Rashford and Carlos, who were the two partners at the time who were there and raising that fund. So that I actually got to know Rashford and Carlos for like over a year whilst they were raising the fund and helped with the negotiations with Cornerstone Investors, helped with setting up the structure which we have now because Seacamp 1 and 2 was a very different structure to Seacamp 3, which we can touch upon if you want. And then when we closed the fund in 2014, I remember just getting a call from Carlos, one of my partners, and he was like, you know, what do you think about coming to work in skinny jeans every day rather than a suit? <laughs> and I was, like, <laughs> I was like, that sounds like a good swap. And so it was a big decision for me at the time to leave behind kind of law because obviously it's, you know, it's a lot of training, it's law school, then you have years of qualification, then you qualify and you get into a department and it's highly competitive and all this kind of stuff. And if you stick it out, obviously, you have a pretty set path. But for me, it was all about what's the kind of impact of different roles. You know, I think you only get one shot at this kind of career which you go into. And I love the idea that you could work somewhere where you're investing early in businesses which are building, which are doing things, which are employing people, which are driving kind of economic growth. And that's always been kind of the DNA of Seacamp, partnering with companies and founders at the earliest stages. And so, yeah, I, I kind of jumped at that chance, which was a, a bit of a risk at the time. I remember handing my notice into the law firm and getting an unusual look from the partner I used to work with. But look, I think it was the best career decision I ever made. And that's how I joined in summer 2014. What would you think attracted the Seacamp team to you? Because a law guy... <laughs> who's uh, yeah. <laughs> fresh out of school. What the hell would I need that guy for in a seed fund? <laughs> no, exactly. No, I think it's a, it's a great question. I don't think I was the maybe stereotypical lawyer, but I think if you look at some of the backgrounds actually, of, you know, particularly in the US, it's a pretty well-trodden path in, into venture. If you look at kind of the Chris Sackers of this world, the Keeper Bois, I think Peter Thiel, all these people did law school and then maybe actually didn't practice for very long. So I'm yeah. definitely not putting myself in that same category, but, um, but at least there is some kind of track record there. But I think from a Seacamp specific perspective, I mean, thinking back then, the team was tiny, right? You know, it was Reshma and Carlos and they did have someone who was doing a similar role, but she was actually moving on. And so they needed someone to come in and, and kind of do a bit of everything. I think, you know, my first role technically was as an investment manager, but we had this fund closed. Obviously, we had a track record of doing investments, but in a very specific way. We wanted to do investments in a slightly different way, like actually building into doing some seed, not just very, very structured pre-seed that, that we'd done in funds one and two. And we had like a new entities and structures and everything. So having that legal training was really useful from a kind of internal Seacom perspective. And then also from the doing deals perspective, we still to this day rarely use outside counsel. We do a little bit now, but 
we did a lot of things ourselves. So I think having that kind of string to your bow, but maybe still being early enough in your career that you weren't kind of defined by it. You know, if you hire a lawyer who's very experienced, then you're going to get someone who's going to come in and what they're going to want to do is law because that's <laughs> where they're It's hard to change that mentality. Whereas I think at my stage, if giving advice to someone who's trying to go in and get this quite a lot for people who are looking to make that transition, I think it's doing it sooner rather than later. You know, like immediately, I think that a lot of the skills I learned through law are still applicable today in the way you think through problems, the way you kind of like digest a lot of information, you can operate really quickly. And to be honest, in, in this job as well, knowing your way around legals when you're a seed investor, just from the basics is a real advantage. But I think all of those things, hopefully, were some of the reasons. And I think they just needed someone to help out, really. Uh, I love that. I love that. So I'm curious to ask, because this is how you got into venture. I'm curious to hear if you'd say then, okay, now you've been with Seedcamp for what, seven years? Eight years, yeah, eight years. What have been the learnings? What would you say if you should draw out the key learnings from this period? What, what are those? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's actually something that now, which is a real privilege with, as we grow the team and you can start to kind of mentor a new generation of investors coming through as well. So we, we think a lot about growing talent from within a Seedcamp. And so I do think about this learnings point when I go back to when I started. And I think one of the key learnings I would have and recommend is that nothing beats experience. I know that when I came in and started, and I remember having this conversation with Carlos and he relayed this kind of similar advice. And I think it's an industry which attracts people who have kind of achieved lots in different areas, whether that's you know people who've maybe been a founder and come in to start investing, people who've been execs in companies and people who have been in kind of like banking, law, consulting, whatever you know, high achieving kind of individuals and profiles. And I think there's a, a tendency to come in. And when you've got very little structure, which most venture firms have, you can kind of do whatever you want in a way. And I think that what I would say is it's good to kind of walk or jog at least before you start sprinting and running. I think that there's no way to shortcut some of the experience. You know, having been in this eight for eight years, I still feel like I'm learning every week, every month. And I still think it's really important to keep that kind of growth mindset. It's something we talk a lot about. So I think that coming in and being conscious of that and not thinking you have to have all the answers straight away, not thinking like if you sat around a board table and there is a discussion going on, even though you might be used to being like the smartest person in the room or like trying to push forward those perspectives, it's yeah. okay to sit back and listen and not feel like you need to have all the answers straight away because some of these things, I think they still, they just take time. There's no shortcut for experience. I found myself quoting Drake saying that wise men once said nothing at all. Yeah, <laughs> applies exactly. Well, right? Exactly. Drake's got it right. <laughs> Thanks a million for this tour, Tom. When Seedcamp came past your desk in 2014, you know, Seedcamp came with a bit of a different take on how to do things, especially the portfolio size is something that Seedcamp, especially back then, was being the... Uh, odd one out in in Europe. I'd love to hear your reflections on that and how it's grown since. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. You know, if you look at venture as an asset class when Seacamp was starting and it's evolved and we can maybe come onto that later, but most people who are investing at the seed stage were building kind of, you know, smaller portfolios, 20, 30 companies, very hands-on, very much taking kind of 20% stakes, joining boards, and it was almost like, you know, kind of, you could think of it as like artisanal venture. And I think there is a hundred percent a place for that. I think that's like, still, there are fantastic funds, which are incredible proponents of that and very skilled at investing in that way. 
But I think what Seacamp spotted was, and what Rashman spotted when she founded Seacamp, I think, was this idea that there is other ways, there's other kind of like ways to, to fund companies and to build portfolios in this space. And in 2007, when Seacamp got going, it was, it was a similar time to when Y Combinator was getting going as well. And I think at that stage, there wasn't really anyone doing this very, very early stage investing. You know, there wasn't many people other than kind of angels, like really funds looking to go like kind of pre-seed. There was a market slightly later, and there was definitely a market at Series A with some of the brands which are still very well established today. And I think when that was starting, initially, almost like Seacamp's approach, the start of us did an experiment, to be honest. You know, Seacamp's fund one was two and a half million euros, right? So tiny, tiny fund. That's like a seed round now. And the idea was, you know, you make a relatively high number, but of small investments. And, you know, can this work? And I think we started to see through that in the second fund, that this idea of investing kind of at scale does work. You know, it allows us to find great companies. It resonates well with founders. And it started to drive really good returns. You know, even when I saw that deck in 2013 or whatever, there was the emergence of some clear winners from funds one and two, in particular Wise, which obviously has since become a public company. And then, okay, with fund three, it allowed us to kind of lean into this and say, right, by design, we're building big portfolios. And one of the, some of the reasons we did that, and we've stayed true to that through fund four, through fund five, which we're kind of three quarters of the way through deploying now, at the time we're recording this podcast in June 2022, is that the large portfolios work for a number of reasons. One, we've got the data now that we think they drive best in class returns because fund three will probably be the best performing fund in European venture, and, and fund four is kind of tracking faster than that. But obviously, current climate might be more challenging for that one for a number of reasons. I think it allows us to get into sectors early and to make investments across the value chain rather than have to kind of pick a particular part of the value chain for each sector and not cause too much concentration risk. So, you know, you can look at huge kind of macro sectors that we've been very early investors in, such as fintech, where we've got investments across kind of, you know, the neobanking space, the payment space, the banking as a service space, the kind of like alternative um, financing, the kind of buy now, pay later, like whole different areas because of the large portfolio that we're able to build. And you can map that same thing to health. You could map that same thing to security, to consumer, to any other vertical. And it really fits with our idea that we're not a kind of sector focused fund. We're very much like horizontal across sectors and, and agnostic to them, but we're very stage focused. You know, we're only ever going to be investing pre-series A out of our core fund. And that's kind of leading pre-seed and investing at seed. And this large portfolio strategy fits perfect for that kind of approach, we think, and being able to, you know, back the best founders in that space, building global businesses. And in addition to that, we think that there are, and we're now having the kind of the fruits of those labors that it's very much a kind of network driven game, we think. You know, there's the network effects for building a large portfolio. And that has allowed us to almost provide an unfair advantage to the founders that we back because you get access to this incredible network from day one. So, you know, you get access to what we think is, and even if you think about Seacamp and how we scale, we're only four partners with six in the investment team. We have, you know, a very, very strong platform team, which supports that as well. And an incredible kind of engine team, which manages the investments from a financial perspective. But really, particularly on that investing side and elements of that platform, we're pretty small for the number of companies that we've got. But the way that we are able to scale is through the kind of peer-to-peer learnings that we're able to facilitate across the network. And also, the not even just peer-to-peer, but also the kind of the mentors, the people we brought involved who are part of that kind of C-Camp nation, as we call it. And that is made stronger by building bigger portfolios. Because with each investment, that network gets stronger. With each node we can add, 
that network increases in the power which it brings to the companies. So I think if you kind of unpack it, the large portfolio makes a hell of a lot of sense because it allows us to invest in across sectors, into different elements, into different value drivers within them. It also you know, gives us ultimately more shots at goal, which I think at the earlier stages, when you see kind of how binary some of these outcomes can become, I think is a strategy which makes a hell of a lot of sense. And then the, the companies which end up being the big value drivers, those ones which graduate to Series A. And that's where all of the support that we have is hugely geared towards. It's geared, you know, where we see our neck is on the line as your lead pre-seed investor or, or your kind of seed investor is getting you to the best possible Series A. And of course, we'll continue to deploy capital. We'll continue to be heavily involved in the companies where they want us to be. But generally, our kind of like day-to-day involvement will start to tail off as those companies, you know, raise Series A and Series B and beyond whenever people are on the board and are more directly involved. Our relationship then becomes more of a personal relationship with founders. You know, we're always on the end of the phone. And I think that's how it scales. And that's why, you know, the big portfolio makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'd love to ask you, Tom, from your perspective, how do LPs perceive your investment strategy? What we're just talking about, what I'm trying actually to kind of tease out is, you know, the profile that gets excited by that kind of approach versus other approaches, right? Because there's great funds, as you say, doing completely different strategies, focusing on a sector as an example or a geography or whatever, right? So just trying to understand the different perspectives and what is the persona of LP that gets excited by something like what you guys are doing? And maybe add to that, try and forget about <laughs> about your incredible performance, right? Because that kind of shuts up everyone. I was about to ask the same and say that this strategy has another word in the in the industry, right? It's called spray and pray. And I always, I've hated that term because I've always said, well, if you do pre-seed, I would damn well do spray and pray. And that's why I like someone like Startup Wise Guys as well. They've done 300 investments out of, out of what, 15 million? That's okay. <laughs> It's definitely something that we've had to spend time educating is probably you know, too strong with, but spending time kind of like running through why, you know, why we think this is the right approach with a number of LPs. And as you say, Andreas, and like, I think since performance has come into play, that conversation gets a lot easier. You know, I look at kind of like the fundraise for Fund4. I mean, we have a joke that we always fundraise during kind of like major economic events and we'll, we'll be fundraising now in probably a recession. But, you know, Fund 4 was Brexit, Fund 5 was pandemic. And then, you know, we'll, we'll raise Fund 6 pretty late this year and as I said, in a more challenging time. But that aside, the conversation's got a lot easier, obviously, with data that we have now around why it makes sense. But I think that it took a lot of explaining about why, you know, what the questions we get from LPs is something like, why, guys, if you've got such a good hit rate, why don't you do less investments and just invest more in those ones, which you can tell. And like, we're like, yeah, of course, of course. We like, kind of would do that. But, <laughs> but some of how we think about it is we think a lot about kind of curating like a big number to a smaller number. And so, uh, you know, our top of funnel is huge, right? You know, we, we still have an open way that companies can actually apply to kind of submit their information via our website. And we, we believe in that firmly because we think that great opportunities can come from anywhere across Europe. And also that, you know, a network isn't a prerequisite. You know, I think that's something that we, we do strongly believe, although also it can be a leading indicator and a positive thing. Mm-hmm. So if you think of that you've got this massive, you know, funnel coming from even cold outreach, but also a huge amount from this network effect thing that we spoke about before where founders are referring to things, mentors are referring to things, second-time employees are thinking about us because, you know, the new seed come from the people who backed their original company. Like, all of that is a massive, massive number. And then we're kind of constantly trying to, what we think about is like curating that down to a smaller number. 
And so we've got like different gates and different ways that we do that. And then we try to get to the companies that matter. And to a certain extent, even some of that post kind of investment can kind of happen. You know, you can think of if you're investing incredibly early, you're investing on such little insight, right? You know, you're investing on like a huge proportion of our deals are pre-revenue and a significant number of pre-launch. And so you're going off like team and market and indications of where the product might go. And so if you were building a very, very small portfolio of those type of investments, yeah. it's just hard to have that much data to go up to make them. And whereas if you can make a larger number and then you can work with those companies closer, track them, and then what you end up having is what looks like a kind of Series A portfolio at the Series A stage. Yeah. Because the graduation rates, although in the last couple of years, the graduation rates actually been significantly above what we modeled, which is a fantastic problem to have, but it means you have a bigger kind of portfolio to start thinking about allocations into. But yeah, I was, then, I was just about to say, just increases your exposure at a later stage. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But I think that you look at, you know, we, we spend, and it's fascinating, and I think there's probably, we could probably do three more podcasts on this, you know, the numbers and the data that we have around it. But it's really interesting as you start to see the maturing of it as an asset class and how if you're investing at this stage, certainly this, and, you, you know, you can see maybe where the market has gone a little bit in terms of, more seed funds now building portfolios of certainly 60, 70, 80 companies where we've always been at this kind of 100 number, which we think is the right one, because ultimately the value drivers in that are going to be some of these companies from within that rather than necessarily having to try and pick them very, very early. And so once you kind of, we run LPs through that kind of process and also more importantly now, because we've got such fantastic access and so many kind of like interesting companies that we're able to you know, invest in at the stage that we invest, it's strengthening that network effect. And I think strengthening that network effect is something that has so many benefits because it's just driving this incredible kind of like seed camp economy almost of you know, <laughs> first customers, first potentially kind of like hires at some stage or yeah. a peer learning network, which is only getting stronger. When you have this strategy and you have so many portfolio companies, then the problem is, especially when their graduation rate is as it is, how do you think about follow-ons? Because that cannot be easy. And I guess it's definitely not the same process as for your initial investments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so how we think about follow-ons is we only ever do pro-rata. So the interesting thing for us is our starting position, again, going back to where we're different and where we're similar to other funds, is we generally like to target between 5 and 7% as a starting ownership equity, which is obviously allows us to be, and what we think is important, is to be pretty collaborative at that stage. Because if you think you're a kind of seed stage company, and you're going out to raise whatever it is, a couple of million or so. We believe that having a couple of heads on the table can be really powerful for that, whether it's you know us leading with a micro fund or another fund coming alongside, whether it's a larger seed fund coming, taking 10% and us taking 5% and then some room for some angels. We think all of that you know makes a ton of sense. And then how we think about like the allocations and the follow-on for those is obviously because we're slightly smaller, then sometimes the product is not quite as scary, although with some of these fast growing companies, it can get, you know, pretty sizable pretty quickly. And like many funds, we hold back pretty much one for one. We're like 50% reserves. We only do pro rata. We make decisions at the time when the company has a term sheet so that, you know, there's no kind of signal. Um, obviously, we have discussions with funds ahead of that. We're very hands-on in having put those rounds together. But when we come in at pre-seed, we're not looking to lead rounds or double down in rounds or anything like that. I always find that interesting, Tom, because... Yes, okay, then you avoid the signal problem for all the ones that you don't invest in, but you also avoid you being able to preempt the market setting a higher price on something that you could have gotten 
at a discount if you were four months early or something like that. Yeah. And I would say you have much better knowledge than anyone outside to know whether you should actually invest in that company. So why don't you form your own opinion and then bet before others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. I think that part of it is because of the role we think we play in the ecosystem and, you know, making sure that we're, you know, it's always a balance, right? Between you, you're maximizing returns and then you're thinking long-term in terms of like where you fit and the relationships you build. I think it's always been core in our DNA that we want to be a good participant in the ecosystem. I think, you know, we want to, we know where we fit in. We know where, as I said before, we believe that even the stage we invest is pretty collaborative. Of course, sometimes it can be competitive when founders are choosing between one or more and that's totally fair and we're willing to play that game when we need to. But we don't think it's like as sharp elbows as different stage of the market when it's all just about capital. And so I think that with that in mind, we'd rather work with fantastic funds at those later stages because also we think that some of those companies, you know, when it gets to Series A and those funds, they're better set up for leading those investments rather than us, even if we could kind of like potentially from a relationship perspective with the founders that we've got put more money in or lead follow-on further rounds or anything like that. We think that there's expertise which you can get at each of these stages and each of these stages set the company up really well for the next stage. You know, we're always thinking kind of one or two steps ahead. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why it works well that, to be honest, sometimes that's a massive fight even for us to do our proratas. And I'm sure you guys know, like whilst there might be a legal right in those documents to say that you can follow on your investments to protect that stake, the reality is that it's always a kind of commercial conversation in some of the fastest growing best companies. And so we believe that you kind of earn that right. And we hopefully, if we do the job that we say we're going to do on the way in, you know, yeah. we, we add as much value as we can, we help even, you know, maybe bring that next round together, then the founders will go to bat for us to be able to at least do our prorata. But I think if we went to them and said, you know, occasionally if we're below, the only state time I'd say this, if, if we're below the starting point that we want to be, to say we want it to be 5% and you could only squeeze us in for 3%, we might say to the founder at that time, look, if we do a job, would you be able to go and see if we can get something more so we can get back to 5%, which is where we want to be. Sometimes we have that conversation, but outside of that, it's always about you know, protecting that stake and keeping space for others because we think it's, again, like a lot of these, and I think about this a lot, You know, there are different outcomes, but the ultimate great outcomes are pretty binary, right? And I say this to founders, it's, you know, you want to do everything possible to give the company every possible chance to get to that amazing outcome at the end. And hopefully we can be the best partner of the stage we invest, but there's probably going to be a, there will be a much better partner to lead that series A and to lead that series B. Yeah. And, you know, we want to work with those people and give the company the opportunity to work with those people to help take that company forward. Yeah, shifting topic because time is moving quickly here. And before we go into the quick fire round, I want to ask you something. So Seedcamp is a completely different beast today to what it was when you first joined. And I'd love to ask you, what do you miss the most from that small shop? <laughs> what do you miss the most? That's a great question. I think so, this, the setup we used to have, and this maybe isn't necessarily a reflection of when it was smaller and scrappier, but just in terms of the new dynamics that we have in the market now with more teams being remote, so one of the things that we used to make available to the companies that only invested was a couple of desks to hang out in the office. And it was pretty casual. It was like, it was supposed to be three months, but some companies ended up you know, being there for a couple of weeks. Some companies I felt like ended up being there for like 18 months or something. We, we hung around for a long time, but there was some magic in that. And like now we actually have a slightly different office setup and we don't have the space to be able to offer that at the moment, although it might be something we do again in the future. But also it's just because, you know, which has worked out really well post-pandemic in many ways, the, the shift to remote. But we maybe lost some of that magic of those kind of in-person serendipitous moments. 
you know, you used to go, we had like, yeah, Johnny at Hoppin was working from the office for, for ages at the start and you would just pop around and, you know, you'd see what's going on with them and just like have a catch up or, you know, there's like loads of companies spend time with us in the office and it would just allow you to have these like, as I said, serendipitous moments where you just been able to like maybe make an intro to someone you're meeting in person or even just pop around and like say hi and see what's going on. And now in some ways it's great because it's leveled the playing field from companies which are remote. So there's no kind of different like setup that other people are getting. But I do think there's some magic lost in that. And it's something that we're we're really looking to try and replicate again going forward. Tom, as I said, it's time for the quick fire round. We always end the episodes with it. It's us quick section where we ask quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I'm ready. So first question is what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? Well, that's tough because everyone in our team is so excited about so many things. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> being a generalist. Look, I think the professional services and stuff, I think still has a long way to go with regards to technology around some of those verticals. So, you know, you think about kind of like boring sectors excite me, like tax excites me. I think that uh, <laughs> like that's honestly something that I think needs a whole load of... Said, said like a proper lawyer. <laughs> exactly. I think I also think that, you know, even picking that one aside, I think, you know, there's some of these spaces which touch like regulated markets, I think are, are really interesting for tech. I think that that's going to come back into vogue as well because there's been a lot of investment obviously going into huge growth areas which are you know massive massive kind of like risk on always looking forward to what could this possibly be whereas now if we go into a slightly different market environment i think that companies which are solving problems which kind of people don't want to do and is possible with software so things like <laughs> tax professional services like even some of these elements of legal and, and other areas yeah. I think will come to the forefront. I think that they're going to be sectors that, yeah, people have overlooked and maybe on market size points sometimes are a bit challenging because it, it's hard to build international businesses. But I do think there's going to be some big success stories around some of those verticals. Yeah. Second question is, what are your top tips for emerging VCs who are cross-Europe fundraising? I think that... You know, as I said before, I think we've been really fortunate having kind of a track record. And I think where there's less of that and you're an emerging first-time investor, I think that being able to have some kind of a vertical focus, I think, can be hugely powerful. And I think that, yeah, like really going down that route, showcasing some of that value ahead of time, ahead of fundraising, you know, building kind of a personal brand around it can allow you to stand out and, and really see founders want you to be in their deals. And I think if you can showcase that and you can show that, through whether it's content, whether it's whatever you're able to do outside of an explicit fundraising situation, then I think that that stands those kind of managers in really good stead. And I think from that perspective, I think it's still yeah. a really good time for emerging managers to raise. Third and final question, what can we expect in the future from Tom? Hopefully uh, being a happy person because Newcastle United are storming up the Premier League now. <laughs> <laughs> from a work perspective, definitely I would love to be doing more content. You know, I, I love doing things like this. I think this is great. I think what you guys are doing on the podcast is fantastic. I think it's a really brilliant initiative. I'd love to, yeah, push out more more content. So it's always the thing on my list, you know, write more. I enjoy it. I think it's a great way to kind of like formalize your ideas. So hopefully you'll see some more content coming from me. Tom, I've literally noted down during this interview that we should hear if you wanted to host a podcast with us. So uh, we'll follow you up on that. And everyone listening in, uh, ping us if you want us to hunt down Tom on this. <laughs> I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Anytime. Anytime. Look, that is good. We'll end the recording on this. Thanks a million, Tom. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.